Cameras aren't usually welcome, but today they were on hand as the special guest tried kangaroo tail and brushed off criticism of his side trip. I see it as a work trip. Quite frankly, I couldn't give a stuff if she docks my pay. Kia ora, welcome to this episode of Season 2 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie. I'm a church minister, chaplain and radio broadcaster. Recovering is a media chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode, I take the opportunity to sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them both personally and professionally. In this episode, I sat down with Garth Bray. Garth will be really familiar to fans of Fair Go, having been part of the team since 2014. Prior to that, he was with TVNZ, where he did a stint as Australia correspondent, Europe correspondent, and as a reporter for Sunday. But before all of that, his media days hark right back to regional Māori radio in the far north and a stint reading news on BFM. Yes, the stint on a Māori radio station was a surprise to me, given Garth is as Pākehā as I am. But that connects to the story we discussed. In this episode, we had a conversation about a story where he chased Hone Harawera around Australia, but more significantly, the impact of a racist cartoon depicting that story when he got back. I want to start somewhere very different, though, from where I've started with most of, well, any of our guests. Dungeons and Dragons. What do you want to know about it? I want to know <laughs> everything. I, I saw a note that said you were into it as a kid and then started getting back into it just before lockdown. Uh, it's something that's never really left me, Frank, to be quite honest. Uh, I got a wonderful uh, Secret Santa present from one of my colleagues at work that has a, a T-shirt that says, Garth Bray, here to slay, on the back. Uh, <laughs> Right through lockdown, and actually ahead of lockdown, uh, I get together with uh, three old friends. Actually, there's a fourth, uh, a relative of one of them. One of them lives in uh, Sweden and Denmark now. Uh, One of them is in Cambridge. One of them is in the far north, where I'm originally from. And we would get together on a Saturday night uh, when other people were maybe watching the rugby and just get together and go and slay some dragons. (laughs) So for those uh, unfamiliar with Dungeons and Dragons, what does that look like for you on a Saturday night there? Uh, yeah, well, it looks like I'm sitting in front of a computer and it looks like I'm uh, talking to my friends and we're talking about life's problems a lot beforehand. We help each other through all kinds of things as well. Uh, you know, you might have uh, health problems, you might have marital upsets and all kinds of things and we're kind of there for each other. So there's mm. that bit of it. And then there's the bit of it where you're, uh, you know, a mace-wielding priest or a guy that shoots arrows really well or whatever, and you are running around the place in a completely imaginary Tolkien-esque kind of a a situation that one of the guys has spent years creating. I think the current campaign we're on, we've been running for about seven years. Wow. And then there's another guy that runs a different campaign that's actually been running since a couple of those guys were at high school together, So, and a few of us have been wrapped in, so... It's like a very, 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 very long series that you binge. That's magnificent. I love the, I love just the personal, social aspect of that as a place where you can, uh, as you're participating in an activity, you can just share what's going on in your world. That's magnificent. Were you ever then the sort of Dungeons and Dragons player who would head off into a park dressed up and wield the swords? We are now getting into deep cover. Uh, actually, one of my friends had a farm, and I do remember one occasion where we sort of made a whole bunch of swords and things. It's called LARPing, live-action role-playing, uh, and this must have been when I was about 15. It's really hot and sweaty to run around in bubble wrap and cardboard in the far <laughs> north in the middle of summer, uh, so I'd recommend water if you ever want to take it up. 
All right. It's good to know you that at least once upon a time in your life you were a LARPer. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Let's let's dive into your career. So let's start with what uh, got you into journalism in the first place. Why journalism for you? Broadcasting came first, actually. So uh, I was um, about 17, and I was mucking around in my last year at high school up north, and a mate of mine said, there's this radio station broadcasting out of a, an old tin shed up by the aerodrome, and they need someone to do the late night Sunday. And should we give it a go? And it was an iwi radio station, Radio Hiku Oteika. And it was, it only just really got started. It's been running the whole way through, and it's now a TV station and a whole bunch of other things. And I really, really loved it. I just loved the freedom of doing this, sitting in front of a microphone, headphones on, yakking away for three hours. We had strict rules. We weren't allowed to swear. No one said anything about the music swearing. And we had to play a karakia at the end of the night. There were these three little sound carts that you popped in and you had to pick one of them for the close down at midnight and they absolutely had to be a karakia play out before we left. And apart from that, we could do whatever we liked. We could give away albums that we had picked up at secondhand shops because we didn't have a sponsor or anything. So me and a friend called Nathan just sat there and did that. And I really, really enjoyed that experience. So I carried that with me. Went off to uni, mucked around there, uh, wound up at BFM. Uh, walked into the station one day and they said, oh, would you like to do the news? Someone's supposed to be here and they're not. So just picked up, I think, a copy of the paper and some other bits and pieces and tried to piece together a bulletin in about 45 minutes and go on and sound kind of what I knew what I was talking about. No idea how bad that sounded. Pretty forgettable, I'm sure. <laughs> but that was the start of that. And then student media, Crackham, uh, a couple of other publications and things, just playing with it, really. Uh, while I tried to work out what I wanted to do with my life. And then a guy called Tim Watkin, who is now RNZ, um, was at a party that I was at, and he'd just finished a course in journalism, and I was, I think I was, packing magazines into boxes at a warehouse and um, reading them all the time. And uh, he said, you, you could do more than that, mate. You could do more than sort of 10 bucks an hour under the table. Uh, why don't you do this course that I've done? And so I signed up for that, got in miraculously, um, I think there were about two, three hundred applicants and about 26 got in. And I must have struck a chord with whoever it was that was interviewing. And they decided, yeah, okay, you can be in, we'll give you a go. Going right back to the beginning of that, can I ask, to state the obvious, Pākehā, how did a 17-year-old Pākehā male get on an iwi station on a Sunday night? Just prepared to do the mahi. <laughs> Um, although I wonder, well, I've never actually asked him if that was part of it, but I'd actually met a guy who was involved in that place, uh, who you'll all know as Hone Harawera, mm. the uh, firebrand um, former MP from Te Tai Tokero. Uh Hone and I met in the forecourt of a service station when I was about 15, on my first month, I think, pumping gas, and he hopped out of a car, didn't know it was him, just this big guy long hair and a white crisp shirt and I was putting petrol into the tank for him and I was very flash, I thought I knew exactly what I was doing so I pulled the thing out of the uh, out of the gas tank and as I was moving back this way it went off in my hand completely accidentally and about like 20 cents worth of gas just went <laughs> and landed on his back and dripped down his shirt and into the 
back of his pants and he turned, lifted up the dirty dogs and said, bro, that really effing stings. And I thought I was about to get pummeled. <laughs> and I almost thought cheekily, should I say, well, just as well you weren't smoking. But I just sort of went, oh, I'm really, 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 really sorry. And I think in the moment he realised this guy wasn't just some other redneck having a crack. He was literally just a complete idiot who had made a mistake. And he was like, mm, okay. Um, so we'd met. And I think we met up at the radio station after that. He was like, mm, okay, we'll give this guy a go. So I always wonder if, uh, if maybe that moment of recognition is, was, was where it all really sparked. Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> We're going to come back to Hone a bit later for the story that you, that you want to uh, talk about. The uh, career advancement then, for want of a better word, progression, journey. Meander. Meander, mm. pilgrimage. Mm. Uh, took you into uh, European correspondent for TVNZ, Australian Europe correspondent. correspondent. Europe correspondent, Europe. please. I'm not okay. European, although yes, the yes. mum and dad are. Okay, correction, Europe correspondent. And Australia correspondent, but yep. not an Australian. Yeah, okay, Correct. good correction, good <laughs> correction. Uh, and then on to Fair Go. Fair Go 2014, so you've been at Fair Go for a good stretch of time now. More than seven years, which is, you know, seven years is what they say you should ever do anything for, but that's, hey, they must really like me and I must really like it. It's it's such meaningful work. It really is. I think the the problem a lot of people have with media is that all we do is criticise, mm. you know, and we do. We, we turn up, we perform a really vital function of saying some bad news happened, you know, terrible situation where some people were, were killed in a car crash. What went wrong? You know, we're always looking for someone to blame. I think... I mean, there are aspects of that on the program now. But also, we're trying to make things better. We're trying to give people a chance to reconsider and say, hey, look, you know, there's half a million people listening. Why don't, why don't you have another go at that? You know? And we'll consider that you know, a bit of your penance, if you like. <laughs> and then you can have a crack at doing better. And I think the people that come to the program with problems and the people that come to the program who have created problems for others, who recognise that, really get a lot out of it. And I can think particularly about a fantastic story, even if I say so myself, with a wonderful woman called Angela, also from the far north, also happens to live just down the road from Honey. <laughs> it's funny how life takes you in circles. And she came to us with a story about a, a heater that malfunctioned and burned down her house. And uh, it's interesting for me because it's a story that Fergo might have passed over in previous years because... She'd let her contents insurance lapse. And I think in the past we might have said, oh, well, you haven't done enough to sort this problem out yourself. You've let yourself be exposed to a problem. That's really your problem. I think the show has matured a lot in that it, it takes people a little more as it finds them and understands that, that life can be very difficult. And so we're looking for ways that we can try and make things better always. And so we, we worked on that for about a year and we got an amazing solution when it turned out that this heater had indeed burned her house down and the man from Bunnings was prepared to front up with a $90,000 check and Angela hugged me for about 13 seconds on camera, which is mm. awkward. <laughs> <laughs> no, lovely. It was beautiful. It was lovely. Uh, but I guess I'm thinking that at the end of that, she said, oh, you know, and what's the word? Ho ho te rongo, which is like, you know, let let there be peace. Mm. She felt like she could go back to Bunnings again. I love Bunnings. She'd go back. Sorry, it's just turning a bit of an ad for Bunnings. You have no, to no. The reconciliation is important and institutions and big organisations being willing to go on a journey of reconciliation for the little guy, mm. I think is really significant. Yeah. And for me, that just totally summed up the show, which is you've been on a journey, you've got there, and actually things are better. 
as a result of that journey, not worse. We haven't just criticised and poked the bone and said, you know, these people are rubbish. We've said, hey, look, people can change. Mm. It's probably self-evident in that story then. The success of Fairgo, I mean, it's been around for a long time now, continues to rate, but isn't isn't flashy, uh, works for the little guy. What would you... What would you put its success down to? Well, we're in people's homes, obviously, because half a million of them or more watch us, but we're also in people's homes and in their lives in a day-to-day way and in a way that's not always that authentically represented in a lot of other media. We go to people all over the country. We're very seldom concerned with necessarily what's happening overseas, so it's a very, very local kind of a program for Kiwis of all kinds. Uh, in my time there, I've seen a lot more new New Zealanders feeling like they want to talk to us because this is a new experience coming to this country. Migrants tend to get ripped off a lot more readily uh, and they will say, hey, this is an amazing outlet that where I'm from originally just doesn't exist. Um, it might be people that have fallen on hard times. It's it's anyone really. It could be, you know, it could be your cousin, it could be your next door neighbour. So I think there's that sense of connection that someone is in there fighting for you or trying to trying to lift up your your problem or your complaint mm. and that we go to people's homes so we're showing people a little bit of New Zealand in the same way that Country Calendar does as long as you are drenching or growing something. It's funny because I was in my head <laughs> I wasn't sure whether I was going to put it on the table. I stick Country Calendar and Fair Go together in my head. Well, you know, we're separated by about a night in the schedule at the moment. Yeah. But that's, but yeah, there's a, and it's probably about the only thing at CVNZ that I haven't had a crack at working for. So, you know, <laughs> guys, if you're out there listening, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it, it's heartland stuff. But it's not just that. We're also in the cities. We're, wherever there is a problem. And I think that's always been journalism, but we're there to do a bit more than just shine a light on it. Sometimes we're hoping we can make it better. Yeah, I think I think that's what I appreciate about it. It's not just highlighting the problem, which good good journalism does as well. Uh, and and you get your journalists who are able to to arc a problem towards the solution and cover that as well. But that doesn't necessarily always happen. Whereas Fairgo seems intent on arcing from the problem to the resolution. We try. It's not always possible. It's definitely what we set out to do. And I know what you mean, though, about because I've worked for about 15, 16, 17 years in newsrooms before that and outside of sort of longer form current affairs shows where, you know, you're just throwing stuff into the void sometimes as a journalist. You you will write a story and you'll think, oh, things have got to change now because I did that mm. great report. Well, sadly, not often the case. You know, you've got to pick your time. I have had success like that. I have been able to time stories in such a way that they kind of start to snowball and things carry on and you can feel like maybe, hey, I had a had a role in kicking that off. But, you know, the world is a big place. It, mm. it takes more than just one person doing what they do to, to make change. Mm. All right, let's dive into the story that you want to focus on. And the difference between some of the other interviews and this one is I have next to no idea or understanding or knowledge of this story. So oh, I'm you're shocked. Gonna be, you're going to be subjected <laughs> to my Full curiosity. So uh, unpack unpack the story for us. So it's 2007, August, and I am the Australia correspondent for Television New Zealand. I've been there for about a year, pretty well established, know my way around the country, know my way around its newsrooms. I think I've got a pretty pretty good grasp on things. I've got a cameraman on tap. Uh, we can f- roam and we can get around if we need to. And I get a call. Honey. <laughs> Garth. 
actually I won't do the voice and I won't I won't try and recall exactly what he said. The guts of it was he was about to abscond from a a parliamentary visit. He was uh, over there with the Justice and uh, Electoral Select Committee looking around. He'd previously already uh, referred to John Howard in some very unfavourable terms, <laughs> I won't repeat. And he was basically doing what Horney always does, which is going his own way. Uh, and he said, I'm on a plane to Alice Springs and I'm going to go up and see what this Aboriginal intervention that the federal government's going to do. Uh, do you want to come? And I went, I'd love to. What was he Better supposed to, to be there for? Uh, parliamentary business. So he was going to Victoria with a whole bunch of other MPs and they were supposed to be looking at what the electoral system does in Australia. Okay. And so this is like a, a week-long taxpayer-funded visit and he just basically told them the night before, hey, I'm not. I'm going to go to the Red Centre and I'm going to see what's what life is really like for the Indigenous people of Australia. The backdrop to this was that the Howard government, the John Howard government, were looking at a an intervention effectively. They were using... The military to go into remote communities, they were taking over the control of how they were run. Uh, they were justifying all this, saying that there were like rivers of grog flowing around them and rampant child abuse and some real social problems. Obviously, that's kind of what you get when you have 200 years of colonisation weighing mm. down on some people and, and a lot of lawlessness out there. And that was a story that I'd covered already. So I guess maybe Honey had been paying attention and perhaps he also thought, I'll give the guy that I know vaguely a call. Uh, so I kind of had the scoop on that, uh, talked to the boss back home and said, hey, look, this is what's happening. You've got about 30 seconds to tell me because I've got to go straight to the airport if I'm going to make it. Yes, yes, go, go, go. And off we went. And so we landed in Alice Springs. You're always racing the clock for the six o'clock news and when you're flying, when you're flying west, you're sort of flying into the, <laughs> against the clock, you know, mm. so you know you land, it's going to be now three hours until six o'clock and, you, you know, you're rushing, you're really, really, really making life difficult for you. Mm. So we get there with a few hours to spare, film him turning up at some spot just to get some overlay for the thing, I do a quick live cross into the news, we're here, everybody else is running the story, where has Honey gone? So I'm feeling like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have the answer for you tonight at six, there you go. So it was being in the right moment and having the access, which is a big part of, I guess, journalism sometimes. Mm. And then just having a, a rapport with the person and also being willing to step into their shoes a little bit and sort of see what it is they're driving at rather than necessarily landing with a big agenda and going, right, I'm here to give you a whack because everybody's saying it's not good what you're doing. It's like, why are you here? Mm. Just ask lots of questions. And so we spent, I think we spent about two days up there. He went, toured, uh, toured around these town camps at night. Um, uh, we got a rock thrown at us in the back of our um, you know, uh, vehicle blown out uh, by people that were not very happy to see us. It was a real eye-opener. Uh, and he, I guess I was on hand to make him available with the camera link and so on to the um, close-up program and a bunch of others. So, you know, we really controlled that story to some extent that you can control anything involving Honey Hariwera or anyone really that wants to say something. But we were right at the forefront of it. But um, when I got back, there was this cartoon in the Herald and it showed someone that looked mysteriously like me <laughs> and the cameraman uh, in the middle of the red of the Tanami Desert uh, sort of lifting up this beer can and I'm saying, oh, this one's still cold. He can't be far away. Oh, wow. And I was like, and I know Rod Emerson, the, the cartoonist who put it together, and I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. I sent him a little email, said, oh, that's great. I'd love to have that, you know, as a memento. 
Um, and I can see why uh, someone cartooning would have gone that way, but, I mean, I know that Honey hasn't touched a drink at that point in 15 years. And I can tell you he's also been smoke-free for more than 20 because he would have gone up and smoke when I mm. squirted the petrol. So for me, it just sort of said, okay, there's a strong dominant narrative in our media around, oh, okay, it's grog-related and, 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 and making some very, very lazy assumptions about people when actually there's probably a lot more going on in their character. And um, I suppose that was a bit of an eye-opener for me mm. in, a, in a, a slightly uncomfortable way. And I started thinking, hey, well... And I hadn't just been thinking about this for the first time because I'd followed Horney and the other Māori MPs' progress into Parliament and even the early stages of, of how the Māori Party, Party Māori, had formed back when I was in Parliament for about five or six years when uh, the foreshore and seabed issue just exploded. It seemed almost out of nowhere. I'd sort of done some digging since and found that you know there was a fair bit of rumbling going on that... Um, the national opposition at that time were really aware of a particular court decision that was coming out and they'd made it clear that they were going to make as much um, hay out of that as they could and the government got nervous about this so they, they clamped down pretty quickly and said, no, no, we're, we're going to legislate across people's ability to take a thing to court to see if there's even an issue here. And of course, if people remember, that led to like you know 40,000 people marching through the streets of Wellington and a, a huge split in politics and the creation of an entire new political party that then, you know, became a partner in the next government. So, you know, it just rolls on and on and on and on. But I'd been watching all of this and going, okay, there's there's a really strong wave blowing through this country and it concerns the the people that were here first, really, sort of asserting their right to have some say in how things are done. Mm. Let's come back to that that bigger picture uh, shortly. The cartoon I find fascinating, and uh, it relates to uh, one of the episodes we've done for this season of Recovering with Carmen Parahi and their uh, the stuff apology of 160 years of misrepresentation of Māori, and I think it's caught in that cartoon. But what I also appreciate about the whole thing is I just imagine the stuff that Hone was over there to do just being stuffy. You know, stiff white shirts and people having really boring conversations that aren't relevant to why he's in Parliament. So then he's offered an opportunity or an opportunity arises for him to go somewhere and observe something that is way more relevant to the whole reason he's in politics, it makes total sense that he would abscond to go and and have a look at that situation. I think he completely made it happen, and I think he knew that when it happened, it would attract attention, and he is kind of... There are some people in our our public life, and he's one of them, who are like human hashtags. Mm. They are just like there to try and get publicity. But... Some of them are just doing it for their own purposes. I think there are some, and I would put him in that category, they they have a kaupapa. They have a reason for why they are trying to shine a light. And I guess he made the point at the time, well, you guys wouldn't be up here in Alice Springs looking at the miserable condition of the people that I've found here if it wasn't for me sort of, you know, throwing myself out there. And I mean, domestic media in Australia picked up the story as well. So he was getting trailed around by an ABC camera crew at the same time who quickly got onto it after they'd finished pinching my pictures. So it, it, it snowballed. And so that's, I think he had a very clear sense of where that was going to go. So uh, yeah, it wasn't just chance, it was smart. Yeah. Can I ask what you saw in Alice Springs? Uh, I saw I saw people who, f- 
it was like they belonged, but they didn't. Okay, mm. so this is these are people who um, the mostly I think uh, Aronta is the is the main sort of tribe, if you like, around there. I could be called out wrong on that one. Uh, uh, and there's a, a, a tribal council that governs the area for a number of others that tries to sort of unite different peoples because it was a bit of a mixing spot. And I saw people who were living effectively in like town camps that had kind of sprung up. They're almost like semi-permanent refugee camps. They were places that had just sort of grown rather than being planned or organised and had stuck around a lot longer than probably they needed to. They were sort of, you know, breeze block homes in quite, quite poor condition. There was a lot of drinking. Uh, there was a lot of alcohol being sold. Uh, and there was a lot of attempts to try and connect people with social services, but in a pretty haphazard way. That was a big part of the visit that, that I saw. And it just felt like there was a lot of neglect, mm. huge amount of neglect, and and maybe not a huge amount of leadership. And I, I don't know where you can place the blame for that. You've got to give people the conditions to thrive before they can thrive. And I felt that uh, I hadn't ever seen anything quite that bad in New Zealand, and I don't want to get into that. Oh, we're we're better than Australia, kind of thing, because it's it's just a false equivalence. You know, every every life is important. But yeah, I did get that sense of why it's such a an interesting story for a lot of New Zealanders how the indigenous people of that country are treated, because some of them have been treated pretty terribly. Mm. The alcohol issue I find fascinating. I mean, we're, we're entering a, a stage largely sparked by people like uh, Guy and Espiner and now Paddy Gower and his uh, expose on booze. But one of the things that struck me as I've studied New Zealand uh, history is the approach to alcohol in the Waikato. I'm from the Waikato, so that's that's where I uh, most spend most of my well, that's where I spend most of my historical reading. And the Kingitanga were really big on stopping alcohol coming into their area because they could see the damage that it would uh, do. So they worked really hard on creating borders where alcohol could not could not enter. Then, of course, when the wars happened, the government ransacked them. They ended up uh, heading south into, into king country. Uh, it, all, it all changed. And as poverty took over, alcohol entered the mix and, and everything, everything shifted. So that, that story of alcohol, I think it, it's far too easy to look at communities and go, the reason you have the problem is because of the alcohol. And if you just gave up the alcohol, you'd do way better. I remember sitting in slums in India and chatting with guys who were completely off their face from the alcohol that they had uh, created. And it would be very easy to go, if you gave up the alcohol, you'd do so much better, rather than going, why are you drinking yourself into oblivion? And who's enabled it to be there, right? Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a money thing a lot of the time. That's certainly what I've sort of spotted in my travels around Australia and, and around here too. I mean, it's I, I grew up in a community, well, actually... People used to jokingly refer to it as Cannabis County because we grew so much of it, apparently. But I've got to say that you know alcohol was probably the main drug of choice for most people up there, and it probably caused most of the harm, and that would be a story right throughout the whole country. Mm. You talked about how that, uh, that experience and that cartoon opened your eyes to some stuff. That was a number of years ago now. The journey then, because once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And I think there's a lot of people who try to push it aside or find excuses to ignore it rather than embracing the discomfort of that. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I've got to acknowledge first off, you can be as interested as you like about 
Maoritanga, you can be as engaged in that culture as you like. But if, if you don't fuck a papa back in some way, there is always that sense that, hey, you're a little bit of an outsider. Mm. And I think you've just got to get comfortable with that idea and go, okay, I'm interested. I'm keen to be a bit of an ally here. I'm intrigued. I'm curious. These are all qualities of being a good journalist also. Let's, let's affirm that because I think there's a lot of Pākehā who once they realise that there's an issue, there's that sense of guilt, and then they start discovering some stuff about Māori and they learn a little bit of te reo, they learn a, learn a little bit of tikanga, and they start to try and self-identify with that rather than owning the fact that we are outsiders and we are guests and the biggest role that we can play is as allies. And so owning our ignorance and being okay with our ignorance and the fact that on this journey someone else takes charge. I'm, I'm quite comfortable feeling like I'm at home in New Zealand. Mm. It's my country. You know, It's a place that I've always wanted to come back to whenever I've gone overseas. It's a place that I've always in some senses represented or looked for the way that you know, people here will see the scene that I'm portraying. Uh, so I'm, I'm quite comfortable with belonging here, but belonging here as a Pākehā New Zealander. But yeah, it's it's recognising, I guess, that it's okay to be curious, but not to feel like you're the guest of honour or the, the or the main participant in this story. And I think it's there's still a lot that it can teach us about um, belonging and family and community, um, collective approaches to things sometimes, uh, all of these things. Uh, so my, I mean, my personal journey, I suppose, I have, uh, I've been undertaking a course in te reo with um, Te Manaho, Scotty, and uh, Scotty Morrison and Stacey. They're kind of like, I think people have said it before, New Zealand's Jay-Z and Beyonce. Yes. Without the record. <laughs> uh, they, one day, one day. <laughs> all criminal record. Uh, but the, the thing is that they are such giving people. And so they've been encouraging a lot of us up at Television New Zealand to take this journey and bringing a lot of others in. And it's a great way to connect with friends and colleagues and others. But it's also a great way to understand a little bit more about a different cultural aspect and probably look into yourself a little bit more and understand what's important to you too. So that's that's been a, a big journey. I think uh, before the pandemic, 2019, I went to uh, Arumaki Reo uh, down at, which is like an immersion course for about four days uh, at uh, um, in Rotorua, that's at Te Ohomai Polytech but they have a, um, a marae there and that was something that, that um, Scotty had arranged and we on marae for about four days uh, I felt like I was sort of a mix of a child and a person with a brain injury because you're walking around the whole time saying things incredibly slowly but it's an incredibly humbling experience to have these people around you going okay we understand everybody's been through these early faltering steps of trying to learn a language. And I think that's good to put yourself in that beginner's mind space. It's really cool. I guess I've looked for, um, it's probably going out of journalism too, but I, I, as you get older and as you get more mature, uh, you get away from that uh, don't clap and don't join dictum that a lot of journalists are given to not belong. So as I get working in my community in different initiatives, I'm looking for ways to connect with mana whenua and sort of recognise them and draw them into the conversation as well. So these are some, some small ways that we can try and make sure that everybody's 
at the table. Mm. I think we, I think we're seeing a slow shift. As an outside observer of media and journalism, I think we're seeing a slow shift from that detached journalism, which is very Western approach to something that is much more integrated. Is the Maori voices allowed to influence journalism? Is the Pacifica voice comes into the space and they're allowed to be who they are rather than needing to fit a Western lens? The hard challenge then is what's left for us. I yeah. mean, literally, people that look like you and me, right? Yeah. And that's quite a hard thing because uh, if you have a firm culture or you belong in some sense, then that's easy. So that's a thing that I'm sort of working through and trying to get my sense of, you know, who is my tribe, where do I belong? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's an interesting kind of a journey, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it's probably really interesting then for both of us as, as uh, Pākehā males of a similar age, uh, mid-40s, to, to own that uh, and to sit with the discomfort of that loss of power, essentially, as we give the power over, hopefully. Well, I think the, the point you made about um, bringing yourself to the situation, I've watched that change happen in the 25 years that I've been a broadcasting journalist, that you were really trained to be this kind of representative, to be this um, kind of neutral observer, uh, to leave all your problems behind. You know, you might have had a bad day at home, you might have a drinking problem, you might have any other kind of, of demon, but you just leave it at the door and you come in and you do a professional job and then you sort it out later. I think people literally are being encouraged to be their real selves at work now and in the workplace, at school, wherever they are. So that's been, and there are some real big questions to be asked there. I mean, around objectivity. We're taught to be very objective, but what does that even mean when you're also trying to bring your subjective biases and things to bear in a fruitful way in a story without obscuring necessarily what, you know, what, what the point of that story is, which is to give other people a fair chance to express themselves too. Goodness me, I feel like I've uh, floated off on a cloud here. No, no, this is, this is really interesting because that, that's got to be an unsettling journey for someone who started journalism and broadcasting before, before that shift. Uh, it would be very easy just to hold on to those old ways of being. So there's a lot of identity questions, work questions. Or to jump into the new way, which is just to selfie yourself to death and, and yeah. overshare, which I think is kind of one response to this, is just to sort of put every little bit about your life out there. And certainly the, in the same way that those grog sellers are really happy to sell you plenty of grog, those social media platforms, mm. which we love and enjoy, are also really, really keen and hungry for every little detail about yourself that they can put out there. So, yeah, I guess I've, for that, I've not been a massive oversharer in terms of social media, although you did find out about the Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I won't tell you where I, where I found that. You're also, uh, you also haven't cried yet. Here in this interview, I'm pushing. I'm trying to find where that is, but it hasn't happened. Oh, well. Actually, that came up the other day, whether or not I'd ever cried watching The Lion King. It was a little staff quiz that we did, and um, it was a trick question. I've never watched The Lion King. Okay. Have you ever cried watching a movie, though? Never cried watching a movie, but came pretty close at, it would have been at a very, very large cemetery in, uh, in Egypt, and I was there to cover the commemoration of the Battle of Al Alamein, which was in 1942. So this was 60 years on. And there were four veterans there of that conflict. And my grandfather was an English soldier, British soldier in the British Army, and he had been involved in that conflict as well. 
Um, he made it out of there, but he, you know, died young. Uh, and these four guys marched around the place in the blazing hot sun. I think Helen Clark had been off somewhere doing something else. And I just remember the one of the journalists really having a go at me because they were all getting quite teary and emotional as they walked around with these old guys. And I was just like Mr. Steely-eyed with the microphone talking to them the whole time. And one of them saying, you're a monster. <laughs> and I didn't tell them, but I'd actually, when they'd been, you know, playing the last post, I was sort of up there sort of dabbing my eyes out and weeping with the rest of them because I really was moved by that whole experience of sacrifice of these kind of young men going off and throwing themselves into an adventure and some of them not coming back. And that's, so that kind of stuff, I think, really pulls at the heartstrings. Mm. We're not quite getting a weep, but we're getting a bit of a husk in the voice. <laughs> Like me, you're still a number of years away from retirement. I hope so. <laughs> and if this trajectory of the shift in Aotearoa, New Zealand, continues, uh, and the ascendancy of, of other cultures who should rightly have a powerful voice continues. Generation K. Kohangareo kids. Yeah. Then, uh, Gen K. Then, it here first. then the power that the likes of you and I have known for quite some time continues to diminish... How do you feel about that? Oh, I think over a long enough time scale we're all dead, aren't we? Yeah, we are. I mean, you know, there's no point in, in clinging to things. I think the more you share, the more you grow. The more you share, the more there is for everyone. Mm. I, I I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I, you know, I mean, it might be. There's a lot of squabbling about water assets and things, but, yeah, I, I kind of feel it enriches us. I've spent a lot of, fair bit of my professional career, well, four or five years of it anyway, reporting for New Zealand outside the world. And um, Māori tangata or Māori, you know, the, that Māori dimension is a huge part of the lens through which, particularly people in, in Europe, um, maybe a little bit less so in North America, certainly in the UK, um, and, and increasingly in other parts of the world, actually view New Zealand. So they kind of see the value. They see that this is something distinctive and different and original. I think it was at a... I used a couple of uh, you know simple mighty phrases at a briefing in Washington once that I happened to be attending, and people were just like, "Oh, what was that? That was interesting. Tell us more about that." You know, I was really just, "Hi, how are you?" But so I think there's if we can capture some of that excitement, we realise there's not that much to lose. There's a lot to gain, mm. and it's it's like anything; it makes our storytelling richer if we can walk a little bit in the shoes of the people that we are reporting on, if we can try and see things a little bit from, from what's their motivation rather than just coming in with our own story, then I think that that's that's the whole point. It's something I learned covering that foreshore and seabed series of, you know, hui. It was like a sort of like roadshow around the country of protest that <clears throat> at the beginning I went in there saying, okay, what are these people so angry about and how can I get it on the TV, all that emotion. And at the end it was... Why are these people so angry? And it seems like they've got a right to in some respects. And they, the people you're talking to are like, okay, we're getting that the media are not necessarily the bad guys. I remember turning up in an early one of those, which yeah, was in like 2005, imagine. 2004, and a guy literally said, ah, oh, there's the guy from, bear in mind we were, it was Garth Bray, One Network News. Yeah. There's the guy from One Redneck News. Mm. And by the end, I think we were at a place where we were doing our proper fourth estate, neutral arbiter, 
we're actually presenting some balance to this now. We're sharing with some people what's the what's motivating people, and that you, it doesn't matter what the story is, whether it's foreshore seabed, anything. That's what you're trying to do is share that balance so that people can maybe form their own view. Must be a heck of a thing to try and create the trust in that situation to get to that point where people don't just shut you down and walk away when they've seen the one news white guy walking in to try and report on a situation where Māori have often felt disenfranchised by by the media. That trust building is a huge exercise. I think it helps if you turn up. I think it helps if your face has been seen. I mean, that's one great virtue that we get as TV journalists is that, that people just intrinsically sort of notice you. You get a little bit famous for just doing your everyday job mm. in a way that a plumber or a priest doesn't necessarily. So there's that bit of recognition. Uh, you're right, some people might bring some baggage with that too. But if you can really quickly try to be curious about a person, try to find out what's actually interesting them and why they're there, I think it gets surprisingly good results. I always go into any situation thinking, the person I'm about to meet definitely knows way more about me in some respect. You know, So let's find out what that is. Mm. And I think if you bring that attitude to it, I've always tried to bring that attitude to any of the stories or any of the situations I walk into, and I think people respond to that because they want to they want to share what they know. Usually, mm. as long as they're not drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get to my last question, which we've partly answered anyway, which will be about the future, how you imagine the future of New Zealand media. Uh, any connections still with Horney? Uh, I think I got a text when I was sitting at the rugby not that long ago from him saying, "I see you in the stands." Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah and uh the next time i go up there i'll definitely drop in and see how he's going look he's he's had i think a lot on his plate at the moment so you know but yeah look i would i would still take a call from him and uh i think i'd like to think he'd still take a call from me yeah i as uncomfortable as voices like horny can be uh i am grateful for him and i'm grateful for all the other maori activists who have pushed against the the tide for so many years, uh, referenced recently in, in a different space, the Māori Renaissance in New Zealand. And I think it it comes down to not us benevolent Pākehā who have made space. It comes down to those who, who raise their voice for their own culture and have kept pushing and pushing and pushing when it's been a hard yakka uh, to get there. And I think we're seeing the fruit of that. Definitely. I think we're seeing a whole new generation that will feel, rather than having to fight, that they can just take it as of right. And I think that there's a certain amount of argument for that. And you go, okay, great, you've earned your space here. Yeah. Show us what you got. Yeah, still with a long way to go, but I, I think we're on the right trajectory. So thinking about trajectory, the future of Aotearoa New Zealand media, what do you see? <laughs> wow. You could do bleak or you could do positive. Which do you want? The bleak version doesn't look great. The bleak version looks like, you know, we're basically a, a sort of a subsidiary of Google or Facebook or something like that. You know, we're, we're pretty much just taking it straight off, straight off the pipe. Mm. I, I'd like to think, actually, I don't know. I'd like to think that 70 years from now, something in this country, whether it's television New Zealand or whatever comes out of, you know, the strong public media entity, or but something that we've, created here has the same kind of role in the world that maybe something like the BBC or the Guardian or you know any other organ that you think has got some trust. I'd like to see us have that role. I'd like something from Aotearoa New Zealand 
to speak truth to the world, mm. to be a source of trust, to be a place where people can filter all that they are seeing and hearing and going, yeah, but those guys have checked it out and they think actually there might be something in that and that that means something. And I think if we achieved that, that would be amazing. Mm. And I think our chances of achieving it are better if we harness all that we are. Oh, so good. Hey, Garth, it's been a pleasure hanging out again. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your stories. Thank you for your for your smile and the uh, relationship of two bald heads. I appreciate that too. <laughs> Kia ora. Again, a big thanks to Garth. Thank you for generously taking the time to sit down for this cordero. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series. And of course, thanks to you for listening. We really appreciate it. A big thanks to Josh Couch and Steph So for producing this podcast and Mick Andrews for his magical audio editing behind the scenes. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who'd like it. And remember to follow to catch future episodes. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media and we demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and you want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up. We'll enjoy paying for the coffee.